Good morning. In Ursula Le Guin's 1974 novel, The Dispossessed, the protagonist is quite literally the man on the moon. Shavak is an inhabitant of Anaris, the moon orbiting the planet Urus. He is also a physicist, and a remarkable one at that. His generation's Einstein, on the verge of a discovery that will change not just his world, but all of them, known and unknown. Shavak's people are not native to the moon, though they are settlers from the nearby planet. Hundreds of years before his time, his people were banished to the moon for inciting a rebellion. They escaped political persecution so that they could pursue their dream of an ideal society elsewhere. The moon, however, is no utopia. The landscape is unforgiving, its dust storms endless, and in this desolate place, in this wilderness of sorts, Shavek's people make a way out of no way. Shavek loves their way of life. In one scene in the novel, Shavek sits with a loved one late into the night. They stare up at the stars from their perch on the moon. And he wonders aloud, feeling how small they are in the grand scheme of things. If you can see a thing whole, he says, it seems that it is always beautiful, be it planets, be it lives. But close up, a world is all dirt and rocks. And day to day, life is a hard job, and you lose the pattern. You need distance. You need interval in order to realize how beautiful life really is. The way to see how beautiful the earth is is to see it from the moon. The way to see how beautiful life is is from the vantage point of death. You need distance, you need interval to see just how beautiful life really is. Today we meet Jesus at a distance, at an interval, out in the wilderness on his own. Today we meet him as he reveals something about this world of dirt and rocks through the experience of standing apart, weak, hungry, and alone. The temptation of Jesus is always the gospel reading on the first Sunday of Lent, a version from a different gospel each year, but the same story nonetheless. In every one of the gospels, this test is God-ordained. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. And what follows is a duel of wits between the devil and the Son of Man, sparring back and forth the words of Scripture on both their lips. If you can avoid hunger, the tempter says, why would you not eat? If you can move through life without harm, why would you fear being reckless? If you could rule the world, why would you reject such power? The tempter is crafty and wise. Food, God's providential care, and power. All these things point to basic human needs and longings. But one thing should be mentioned from the outset, one thing that might be easy to miss. None of these things are bad in and of themselves. Each of these temptations holds the potential for both good and for ill. Useful in one circumstance, harmful and easily abused in the next. Take, for example, the desire for power. 
we are each probably most aware of how power has been abused, whether among our close family and friends, or at work, or in the church, or in the public square. At the end of the day, however, power itself is a neutral word. The Spanish word for it, poder, points to this reality. Poder is also a verb, and it simply means to do, to do. That is what power is, the ability to do, the ability to effect a change. Whether it is a good change or a bad one is another matter altogether. Power may have a bad connotation in most of our lives, but just take a moment to reflect on those times when you have felt powerless. I have never heard someone complain about the power to put food on the table when they lack the ability or opportunity to do so. I have rarely heard a person grappling with addiction tell me of the merits of feeling powerless in the face of their constant, uncontrollable craving. It is often the benefit of people with a moderate sense of stability to balk at the desire for power, to think of it only as a crude weapon to minimize and intimidate. Those very same people tend to be unaware of their power until it is suddenly jeopardized, until they are unable to provide for themselves or their loved ones, until the relative safety of their community is rocked to the core, until they are no longer able to enjoy the relative comforts that life has offered them. On the surface, Jesus' response to the temptations might seem like an outright rejection of the desire for sustenance or power or just desire altogether, but there's something else at play here. Jesus stands at a distance, at an interval, to show us what is truly necessary. In weakness, in hunger, and thirst, and raw desire, he helps us see what we truly long for. From the experience of hunger, Jesus helps us understand what will truly fill us. From the experience of powerlessness, he helps us imagine the power of true freedom and weakness. It is all well and good to turn stones into bread, Jesus seems to say, to amass goods for ourselves, to build storehouses for our wealth when we run out of room in our homes. But what good is it when all we truly need is our daily bread? What good is it to rule the world, Jesus seems to say, to have everyone and everything subject to your every whim and desire when we are slaves to our fear of losing it all? What good is it to gain the whole world if we remain afraid of our vulnerability, our humanity, our dependence on the God from whom all blessings flow? From the brink, from the brink of death, Jesus maps the way of life. By letting go, he helps us understand what it means to grab hold of that which is truly necessary. Friends, what does it look like to allow Christ to mold our understanding of what we truly need? For those who have always had more than enough, it may look like the freedom of giving up control. For those to whom that has long been denied, to the hungry and the thirsty, the weak and the broken, it may look like staking a claim on the kingdom yet to come, the place where the last get first dibs on blessing, the place that is breaking in, not in the sweet by and by, but even here and now.
at the beginning of the pandemic when this place was sitting empty, I thought a lot about what I could learn from absence. I remember a conversation I had with Father George about whether we ought to keep celebrating the Eucharist, the central part of our Sunday worship, when no one was here to consume it. We settled on continuing to celebrate the meal, but we chose not to take part in it. It didn't feel right to take part in that meal without you. The season of Lent, my friends, in some ways is a study on what we can learn by absence, what we can learn from hunger and thirst and weakness. It is about what we gain when we strip away the varnish of our lives, about the perspective weakness provides on the goods that we enjoy so readily. We walk the way of the cross with Jesus, hoping to find in it the way of life. We learn the true power of our life together when we consider its absence. Thank God for that, for the ability to come together on this, this communion Sunday, on this day and at this table. So let us walk this road to Calvary Hill together this Lent. From death, life shall spring forth. From the pit of despair, joy abundant. Amen.